questions. The first question is, does it create value and the value that I want to create? Welcome to your personal branding podcast with Bernard Kelvin Clive, your number one career and business podcast in Ghana, bringing you expert interviews and insights into personal branding, personal development, and publishing. Now, here's your host, Bernard Kelvin Clive. Yeah, hello, listeners. Welcome to another edition of your personal branding podcast. And really excited about this edition because I have John David Mann with me, the co-author of the Go Giver books. We have John back. So my thank you today, so much. My guest today is John David Mann. He has been writing about business leadership and the laws of success for more than thirty years. Entrepreneur from a very young age. John, you're welcome yes. to the Personal Branding Podcast Show. Thank you so much. So great to be here. John, you've done a whole lot over the past 30 years, you know, co-authoring books, uh, New York Times bestsellers, establishing business, raising entrepreneurs, and a whole lot. Let's delve a little bit deeper into your background. How did, did it all get started? Uh, well, that's interesting because I, I certainly, I never set out to become a writer. Uh, actually, when I started out in life, I was a musician. I played the cello. And I played uh, in a symphony orchestra. I played recitals. I was a composer. And that was my plan. That was my plan for my life. <laughs> and uh, then I, I became very interested in nutrition and health. And I got kind of involved in that field. And then that led to business. I became interested in different um, <clears throat> avenues of business. And I, I got involved in sales and marketing. And I did that for some years. And all along the way, I was always editing I was uh, seemed to always be called on to. There would be people in my field who had something good to say, but they weren't saying it too well on paper, and so I would be editing. My my uh, my parents were both teachers; they were both scholars, and so writing and editing was kind of in my blood. It wasn't until so I edited for many many years, and uh, I edited journals, I edited other people's books, I edited newsletters, journals, things like that, and then uh, it was really about. Uh, you know, only 10 years ago that I began to, to really write books and, and made that the focus of my career. Bob Berg had a lot to do with that, actually. Oh, interesting genius uh, shift here. But one of the things I would also would like to know is how has your natural giftings and talents aided you in your journey into entrepreneurship and as an author? Ah, uh, you know, it, it, to me, it's it, it has always seemed like being an entrepreneur and being a writer are really very similar. I mean, in writing, you start with a blank page. Uh, you start with, you know, you're, you're creating something out of thin air, basically. You're creating something that wasn't there. Now, whether you're writing fiction or nonfiction, writing a business book, or you're writing a blog, or whatever you're doing, it's still the same thing. You're telling a story. In some way or shape, you're telling a story, and you're creating it out of nothing. Even if you're... I've written a number of books that were memoirs, other people's life stories, and so it wasn't out of nothing. I mean, they, they had this, their life to tell. But still, you have to figure out how are you going to tell that? Where do you start? What does it mean? What do you call the chapters? What's the thread? What's the lesson? You're still creating something uh, out of that. 
an entrepreneur is doing exactly the same thing. You're creating something that wasn't there before, and it's very similar. They're both scary. And starting with a blank page and starting with a, a new day in your life, are they're sort of like diving off a diving board. And um, so I, I, I continue to 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 see the parallels in in entrepreneurship and and writing and and in just living a life. I think that every person carving out their life, whether they're an entrepreneur or not, is still engaged in that creative process of, of building something, creating something that that wasn't there before and that is unique. So the thing like between or the similarities between is all trying to create something out of let's say nothing or something just delve into the book the go-giver and one of the things that are, that are formative themes around is is being presented as a business or a brand book but you say that it's also found among teachers and educational settings and why and yeah that, that's that's been so interesting to us too um we of course we we positioned you know, the, the subtitle of the book is The Go-Giver, A Little Story About a Powerful Business Idea. So that's, you know, the way the book was presented to the world is it's a business book. And so it's, we were published by Portfolio, who's a business publisher. And so that was the, you know, that was the, you might say that was the brand of it. But, of course, Bob and I always meant it to be really more about life than just specifically only about business. Uh, but it never occurred to us that people would use it in, in teaching children, but th this is what's happened. So the, soon after it was published, we were contacted by um, a man named Randy Stelter, who is an athletic director and a teacher in a high school in, in Indiana. And he said he wanted to use the book to teach their class, their senior class. This is the, the class of students in their last year high school before they're going to go out into the world, you know, go to college or go get a job or do whatever they do. He said, I want to teach them the go-giver to prepare them for the way the world really is. And I love that. Bob and I both thought that was so great that he would see it that way because, you know, a lot of people might look at the go-giver and say, oh, that's just a story. That isn't how the world really is. But we believe that that is the way the world really is. So, Randy did that, and he's done it every year since. So this has been six years now. He's taught every every year he teaches the book. And, and then we found, uh, we started hearing from other teachers who were doing the same thing, who were using the book, teaching it in their schools, um, in high school, uh, kids in their teens, and even in college. Even one graduate teacher said he was using the book in his in his graduate course. So we, uh, of course, we were very intrigued about that. We also had a lot of parents write to us and say, I've given the book to my kid to read. And th that, that could be a child aged 14, 12, 10, 9, younger. Um, and that, of course, was, was very interesting for us, too. So now we've created, we're actually working on a curriculum guide. It's a separate publication that will publish Oh, probably in about a month, we're going to have published a, um, so you can, you can buy this curriculum guide that actually walks a teacher through seven lessons that with, uh, you know, vocabulary lists and questions to ask the class and so forth. Uh, I, I can't think of anything more exciting for us as authors than the idea that this book is being used to teach the next generation of, 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 of people before they've even entered into the world of business or career. 
Uh, this is so exciting and something you know, as, as an author you might not even know where your book may find its, itself and even the audience might even impact more. yes yes wow that that is that is so exciting especially because th- these are the f- foundational stages of their career of their lives so if they get such a valuable content like this to help them build and the next generation is blessed to have a content like this mm, it's so great that's so great to hear yeah so, one of the concepts about uh, the go-giver book is you, you talk about the go-giver culture. What does it really mean to, to inculcate the go-giver culture, not just a philosophy in books, but in, into churches, into schools, into families? What is that and how do we inculcate that into our system? Yes, go-giver culture. Well, of course, there's, you know, in, in business writing, there's, there's a lot of writing about the culture of a business. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people teach about that. And in, in some ways, the culture of a business and as you say, it, it is not just a business, can be a church, can be a community, can be, you know, any time you have a group of human beings organized together for a purpose, a culture emerges. And it, it can be a little difficult to define exactly what that is. I mean, you can, you can draw up something on a piece of paper. You can say, this is our mission, but that doesn't necessarily create the culture. I think what creates the culture most often is <clears throat> is the people leading the business or, or the church or the school or the whatever. The people who are in leadership positions, uh, you know, it's amazing. I uh, use a store. I use a, a store here in this, in this country, in, in where I live in Massachusetts. And they have a branch here and they have a branch in Florida. And I, u- and I go back and forth and I use them both. It's the same business. It's the same, owned by the same company. It's a franchise. So it's supposed to be the same. The two of them are completely different. <laughs> They're different attitudes when you walk in. They, they speak to you differently. They, they deal with you differently. They have different speed of service. It, and I walk out feeling completely different. In one place, they're always friendly. They're always helpful. They're really uh, engaging. I always have fun conversations with them. They always they know who I am. They look out for me. And the other one, I won't say which one. Um, I walk in and nobody says anything. I stand in the back of the line and nobody says anything. And I wait and I finally get there and they go, oh, okay. And it's a completely different experience. That's the culture. It's kind of the the spirit of the place. I think uh, you could say a go-giver culture happens in different ways. Um, But I think it isn't just about being a nice person. And the go-giver isn't just about being a nice person or being nice to people. One way I think you create a go-giver culture is to go above and beyond all expectations. You know, there's a part in the book where... Ernesto, the restaurant owner, is talking to Joe about what makes a poor restaurant, a good restaurant, and a great restaurant. And he says in a, in a mediocre or a poor restaurant, they, they try to give you just, uh, just as little service and, and food as they kind of can for the money. They kind of do the minimum to get by. In a good restaurant, they try to give you as much as they can for, for the money. But in a great restaurant... They try to blow your mind. They try to go completely above and beyond anything that any amount of money could possibly pay for. It goes beyond money at that point or price or cost. Um, the attitude is whatever job we have, let's see how we can do this in a way that goes completely above and beyond anything reasonable. <laughs> um, and I think that's a go-giver culture. I think that's just not, not because it's an obligation. 
not because you're supposed to, but for this, for the sheer joy and exuberance and, and, and passion of it. And I think that is what creates uh, a go-giver culture. Oh, that's, that's, uh, now, I think for introduction, I mentioned that you were able to create your own high school at the age of 17. That is blowing. That happened. It's interesting. We, I, I was going to a, a little school um, uh, in in grade school that I had a number of friends there, and then we all went on to our own high school, different high schools. And the high schools we went to were not terrible, but they also weren't great. Uh, we were all sort of bored, and we were going by going through the motions, learning our English, and learning our mathematics, and learning our history, and it was not inspiring. And it was, we were all just kind of. Kind of Bored and unsatisfied. Now, at that time, this is the 1970s, and at that time there had been a big alternative school movement in the United States, and a lot of it was uh, sort of the 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 typical view of alternative schools was it's kids who want to drop out and do nothing, you know, create their own school so they can just kind of get by and not do anything. We were the opposite. We wanted to have a school where we could do anything. We wanted to have a school where we could study anything we wanted to study and really learn it uh, from people who were doing it. So we, a bunch of us, maybe a dozen or so of us kids, we were 16 and 17 years old, got together on the weekends and just started talking about what would it be like if we could have our own school, we could really learn. What would that be like? Fortunately for us, we had parents who didn't discourage us, didn't tell us we were foolish, they said, they just encouraged us. And so we kept meeting about this idea. And we decided, you know, what if we really tried to do this? Nobody told us we couldn't. So eventually we decided that we, we, needed, to, we needed to have an adult helping us. Um, we needed to do some fundraising. We needed to get some money so we could rent a building, so we could afford supplies. You know, we needed to get a, a real physical thing going here. We needed a grown-up to help us, so we began holding interviews. We interviewed for the position of director, and the salary we were offering was, at that time, it was a very, very um, exciting figure. It was zero. <laughs> we were offering a salary of nothing um, for this director to come and help us build our school. And we had about a half a dozen very interesting adults from different backgrounds come and interview for with us for position at our school um, because they all thought what we were doing was interesting. And we eventually hired someone, a wonderful man named Julian Thompson, who came and lived in uh, one of our houses. One of our parents uh, put him up in a spare bedroom, and he lived with us and did fundraising and talked with us every day. And we, we uh, together, we, we just shaped out this view of what the school would look like, and the next year we opened and I was one of the students in the first class. I graduated that year. The following year, I went back and joined the faculty, and I taught there for a year. Um, and then the school went on for another 10 years after I'd, I had moved on. It was, and it was very successful. <laughs> I, I would say that the way that the classes worked, we had three full-time live-in faculty members who were all very interesting people who taught a core curriculum of, of literature and English and science and things. You didn't have to take anything. There were no requirements, but a lot of people took their classes. And then the rest of our faculty were 
from parents, friends of parents, people we knew, people we ran into, who had their areas of expertise, everything from cooking to computer programming to anything you could imagine. If there was a student who wanted to learn it and an adult who could teach it, then we created a class around it and we, and we did it through our school. We had some 50 different classes going in that first year. It was exciting. So do you think that that model can be replicated in this particular age now? I don't know. I don't see why not. Um, I, I don't see why. I, I don't know of anybody who's done that lately, although I haven't been highly involved in the education world, so I haven't been looking. But I, I think that something like that can always be done in any era. It's, it's just what we were being, although we didn't know the word, was we were being entrepreneurs. Uh, and I think that there is always the, uh, and I realize this, this obviously varies from country to country, society to society, you know, where you have more restrictive societies, it's obviously much more difficult. When you have more open society, it's obviously much easier um, to do. So there are countries on the, on the earth right now where anything like that would be flat out impossible, I'm sure. But in a relatively open society, I think that there's always room for, for, uh, for, for forging new ground and doing things that have never been done, even when it appears impossible. Will this have a play in the goal-giver culture? Because back then, at age 17, you focus on giving value to people. Do you think that that has any relation? Maybe back then, there wasn't like goal-giver, but yes, something like that. That's great. That's such a great question. Um, yeah, I think it, I think so. I think it did. I think for me, it was uh, it was an exciting educational model. That, as you say, it was really all about giving value. And what we found was, and we didn't put it in these words, but I can look back and, and say it in these words. We found that if we focused on giving value um, in, in a meaningful and powerful way, then the finances would work themselves out. And they did very well. I think it's interesting because Bob, you know, Bob Berg, my co-author, his father created this wonderful school that was, on the face of it, it was a boxing school. Right? It was a school for kids to learn how to box. But, um, you know, but it was really more of a school for living. It was more of a school for, for how to become a human being, how to become an adult. And I think for both Bob and I, we, we were exposed to, uh, educational models. Very different, of course, but I, I think that, that probably that, yeah, I think you're right. I think that did form for both of us in our different ways, our views of, of what's possible and what's valuable. Mm. I think the, the main concepts of the, Go-Giver book by Bob and you, and it says that, that the first law is the law of value. Now, one of the things that maybe a listener might be asking, how do I give of value by not losing myself out? How do I give of value? So what are some of the means or ways uh, listeners can, can begin to practically give of values like you did at age 17? Yes, I, I, that's great. I think it's so, it's so important to know that when we talk about giving more value, of course, the first law in the book, as you say, there are five stratospheric laws, five laws of stratospheric success. And the first is the law of value, and it is kind of the fundament of the whole book. The law of value says that uh, um, your, your true worth, now you can read that any way you like, your true worth as a person, your true worth in the marketplace, um, you know, your true worth to your organization or to your team, anyway, your true worth is dictated by how much more you give in value 
then you take in payment. Now, I think it's really important to understand that doesn't mean money. <laughs> that doesn't mean you have to give away something that costs more for you to create it than you get paid for. It doesn't mean giving your stuff away for free. It doesn't mean um, it doesn't mean making yourself impoverished and bankrupt. It, it, that's not what we're talking about at all. So I think that's important because we've had we've had people who write to us and say, "Oh, I loved your book and I get it. I should start giving my stuff away for free." No, 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 no. That's not what we're saying. <laughs> Sometimes it's appropriate to give things away for free, yes, but that's not a business model necessarily. So looking for ways of giving value, I believe, Bernard, that things uh, – it's important to look for ways to do this that are little. It's important to implement the go-giver's laws in little ways. Always start little because if you pay attention to the little things, the big things will sort themselves out. If you practice these laws in little ways, it's like you're developing a muscle. And then when it comes to the important things in life, the big things in life, the big decisions, the places where you really need something big, that will be there for you, these, these muscles. So little ways you can look to give value, they would be like uh, uh, things that we often think of as customer service. Um, again, I go back to that question. In any situation, how can I go above and beyond any reasonable expectation? I'll give you an example. In my work, I do a lot of correspondence with editors, publishers, agents. And uh, often these, this is email, often. And it's often very, they're very brief emails. They're about, you know, this issue or that misspelling, or we have to do that proofing, or we have to have this arrangement or that contract or whatever. One of my goals is that I want to make them laugh every time I write to them. Um, now you have to be careful with this because if you try too hard to make people laugh, it can be forced and it, you can, you can just make them uncomfortable. But I go out of my way to make my editors and my agents laugh and it brightens their day. And they come back to me all the time and say, you're like my favorite author. And it's like, oh, you know, why is that? Because you always make me laugh. It's little. It doesn't take a lot. Um, another thing is to listen, um, really listening to people, to engage in conversation with people, to give them more attention than the interaction requires. I go back to my two stores. They're both branches of the same franchise. And one of them, they always engage me in a little bit of conversation. And again, you can overdo this. You can be, you can, you can, uh, uh, make the person feel like, uh, they're, they're trapped in your conversation and they want to get away. You have to be sensitive with that. But I always look for ways that I can go a little bit above and beyond expectation. Um, I, uh, try to be, when someone asks me for advice, to be a little more helpful than they probably expect, to give recommendations, to give references, to suggest resources. Um, there are things that we can do that don't take a lot of time and they don't take a lot of our personal effort and they don't take away any money at all that just add to the other person's life in, in, in little ways. Uh, by the way, a smile. Sometimes a smile is the simplest thing, but it makes such a difference. Costs nothing. That's so true. Mm -hmm. A smile is magical. Yes, it is. I was talking with someone who was a very, very big Wall Street businessman, multi, multi, multi millionaire, um, probably a, a billionaire by now. And he said that he, he would, said one day he went through a whole series of meetings in Manhattan and he got a car. He landed at the airport. He got a car 
that was not a taxi, but it was like a reserve car. And the driver came, picked him up, and uh, he got in the car, and the driver handed had two cups of coffee. He said, sir, I have a cup of coffee black, and I have a cup of coffee with cream. I wasn't sure which way you like it. And the guy said it made his whole day. And all the rest of the interactions he had that day, all the business associates and everything, that the most satisfying, engaging interaction he had all day was with his driver because this guy had been thoughtful enough to get two coffees just to make sure that he would have the right one. Uh, How much did that cost him? Like $2. And he made a friend for life there. Wow. Sometimes those little, little things that create more value or more impact than even the big things that we might even think of doing. The little things are the big things. John, in your book you mentioned that uh, money is the echo of value, the thunder to values lightning. What does that really mean? Money is the echo of value. (laughs) Yeah, I know it's one of Bob's Bob's favorite phrases from the book. He quotes it all the time. Money is the thunder to, uh, to values lightning. So what that means is, you know, when it's lightning out you see the lightning and then a few seconds later you hear the thunder the thunder is because the sound waves take longer to reach you than the light waves so it's it's just it's a it's a metaphor uh for us for for the way the way money works money itself is we say an echo of value because it's value that creates the impact value is 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 the event Money is a reflection of that event. In the same way that the moon's light is really just a reflection of the sun's light. The light comes from the sun, but we see it reflected in the moon. Money is the moon. It's a reflection of the sun, which is value. The reason this is important, you know, at one point in the book, Pindar, the mentor, says to his, his young guy, Joe, he says something which, which, uh, I, I wrote that in the book because I once heard a businessman I was working with say this sentence, and it really struck me. I got to use it later in the book, which was, does it make money is not a bad question. When you're making a business decision, does it make money? Is it profitable? Is not a bad question. It's just a bad first question. So the first question should can never be about money. When you're making decisions, money can never be the first question. The first question is, does it serve? Does it create value? Does it fulfill the objectives of our mission? Does it, fulf- does it do what our companies and business to do? Does it provide value to the customer? Does it enhance their life? Does it improve their life? Does it get our story out? Does it get our message out? Does it help change the world in the way we want to see it change? All of these things are great first questions. The first question is, does it create value? And the value that I want to create then the second question is, okay, if it fulfills question one, then number two, can we make a profit at this? Because that's an important question. Because if you don't make a profit, you'll go out of business. Right. And that doesn't help anybody. So the money question is always important. But it's always important to ask second and come behind the question of value. The other meaning of that is that if you create value, if you go in your business or in your life, you go out and you create value for other people, even if that isn't immediate, if, even if you don't see a way for that to immediately create income, it, the money will follow. The money will happen. The money always follows value. So that's that's um, you know whether it's for entrepreneurs or anybody else, that's that's an equation that you can count on. 
So if you offer value upfront, certainly the money will follow suit. Yes. Yeah, there was a book many years ago. Somebody wrote, I forgot, Marcia Sinatra, I think was her name, who said, "Do what you love, the money will follow." <laughs> and I think that's that's often true. It's tricky though because it isn't always true. You know, sometimes you know what you love to do is you love to make little wood carvings, and so all day every day you make little wood carvings, and after three years you say, "Why did my electricity turn off?" <laughs> So it isn't that simple. It isn't just do what you love and the money will follow. It's create value for the world, and the money will follow. Now, if you can find a way to create value for the world, doing what you love, that that is the magic formula because your passion, you know, will ignite a lot more value than than otherwise. Great, great, John. John, let's let's look at one of the themes of your book about the subject to do with influence. And how does uh, influence really play come to play in the go giver? This is an interesting one. This influence is actually the, in our book is the third law. Um, it, we call it the law of influence, and it says that your influence is determined by um, how abundantly—that is, how much, how above and beyond—you place other people's interests first. Now. This kind of turns the idea of influence on its head. The conventional idea of influence. The conventional idea of influence is you're an influential person if you're important, if you're successful, if you have position, if you have money, if you have accomplishments, if you're famous, if you're top in your field. Well, all those things are great, but we say those aren't what creates influence. That is to say. What does it mean to be influenced? When you're influential, when you have influence, it means other people listen to you. Other people pay attention. It means when you do something, a lot of other people are watching. That's influence, right?、Um, it means you can make things happen in the world because when you act, a lot of people pay attention. What creates that attention? We believe that it is at its foundation if you're a giving person. Now, that to a lot of people sounds like. That's crazy, <laughs> because you know they 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 think of examples of famous people who are very influential, who are greedy and selfish. You know, when I look at those examples and I really follow them, first of all, a lot of people that we think are greedy, we assume are greedy and selfish. And when you get to know them, you find out that they aren't. <laughs> that what their passion is. A lot of very successful businesses, their passion isn't about making money per se. Their passion is about. Like Steve Jobs, the the,、uh, the you know the famous CEO now deceased, but the famous CEO of Apple Computer, Steve Jobs was not, by many people's description, a nice man, not an easy man to get along with,、uh, you know, not necessarily a, a unselfish person. I, I don't know how you want to describe him, but bottom line, Jobs' passion was to create insanely great tools for people. To create things that people that would change people's lives, to, he was so focused on creating value in other people's lives. It wasn't personal. He didn't go to individuals and say, "Hey, you, Joe, I want to change your life." It was in the tools. It was in the technology. But that that passion was very go-giverish. He was creating value.、Um, so anyway, what we say is, influence is created by how much you put other people's interests first. And, and I think back, or I, I would say to people, think in your own life, who has been most influential in your life? 
Who are the people in your life who have had the most influence on you and have the most influence on you? And now think about, do they create value in your life? I mean, I think about my life, probably the most influential person in my life was my dad. And my father was an extremely busy man. He was a musicologist and a, and a professor in college, and he was an author, and he was an editor of a journal, and he was always working. He brought his work home with him. He had a, home, a study at home where he worked. After dinner, he would get up and go upstairs and go back to work. He worked around the clock, not because he was a workaholic, but because he just loved his work. But I could go to him at age five and knock on his door any time, day or night, no matter what he was doing, as long as he wasn't on the phone, um, I could go knock on his door and he would put down whatever he was doing and say, what is it? What can I do? He always made time for me. Uh, I look back now that I'm a father many times over and I say, how did he do that? <laughs> I don't know. How he... um, but the, what, what strikes me about him as I look back now is that he always put my interests first. Um, and that, and that, you know, I think that is what creates an influential person is the spirit of generosity. I'll give you an example, mm -hmm. if you like. Yeah. Um, there's a there's a one of my favorite examples. There's a comedian. He's now gone. His name was Rodney Dangerfield. Rodney Dangerfield um, was a, 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 a alcoholic, a complete failure. He tried for years to be a comedian, and his career tanked. And uh, at one point, he got divorced, and then he and his wife got remarried, and then they got divorced again. I mean, this guy was going through a life of suffering here. But at one point, he hit a certain formula that just worked. He took on this name, Rodney Dangerfield, and he found the persona, the comedic persona that worked. And he, his life began to come back together. He'd spent years as an aluminum siding salesman by day, struggling to get his career going by night. He finally found the formula, and his career began to take off. Immediately, he bought a night. He bought a, a comedy club and began using it as a forum to promote other comedians. When you go into the American comedy scene today and you talk with just about any established comedian of a certain generation, they all will tell you who is the most influential comedian in, in their in their career, Rodney Dangerfield, because he was constantly promoting them. He is famous for being a guy who was never threatened by having other comedians in his club or having other comedians in act, he was constantly trying to find ways to push other people forward to build their career. It was just his nature. Uh, and as a result, he was probably the most influential comedian of his generation. That happens in every profession, every walk of life. The influential people are the people who are looking out for others. Wow. These are rare human beings. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I think it fits so well in the go-giver, uh, um, I mean, uh, philosophy, the value given. Because especially in this age of competitiveness and, and people, social media brands, everyone to push themselves up but not helping others. So it's one yeah. me, 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 me all over. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a great point, Brian. You know, there's this focus on branding and social media identity can easily tip too far in that direction of getting very me-focused. Now, that said... I mean, I'm a big believer in building brand. I'm a big believer in, in, uh, you know, in discovering your identity in the online world. I think it's very, very, uh, it's a very great thing to do. But that has to be all about what's, what is it that I offer? Not about who is me, 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 me. <laughs> right. 
Uh, John Bob, you mentioned one of the things that you mentioned about this, the law of left field. Um, uh, talk mm-hmm. to us about that. The law of left field. It's not something that we exactly talk about in the Go-Giver, in the book itself. Um, we have another book called Go-Givers Sell More. And it's about, it, it's not a story. It's more like a, uh, it's a companion volume. It's a book in which we wrote 31 little chapters, uh, each one sort of, about like a little lesson or a little uh, 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 well, I'll just say a little lesson, a little essay uh, explaining how the laws of the go-giver work in, in real life and in that book we talk a little bit about the law of left field, here's what it is you know how things sometimes just seem to come in a left field sometimes things just drop in your lap, a perfect opportunity the perfect connection the perfect answer to a question that's been bothering you, or the perfect solution Solution to a difficult challenge. Things just drop into your lap out of left field, we say. So our, our belief about that is that, that the universe is a very intelligent place, that there is a fabric of intelligence and wisdom at, at the heart of the universe. You can call it whatever you want to call it, however your belief system is, but that there is this, there is this intelligence that knows you better than you know yourself, <laughs> that knows what you need even better than you know yourself. Uh, the same way that when you're little, your parents know what you need, you know, perhaps better than you know. Well, the universe, God, the, the great cosmic wisdom, um, is like the the, uh, the universal parent that knows what you need better than you know what you need. So sometimes, you know, I'm a big believer in goals. I'm a big believer in in dreams and in articulating a vision for what you want. Big dreams and big goals, big visions. But I also think it's important to leave room in those visions for what you don't know. Um, you, I think it's important to not get too attached to the specifics of your goals, your dreams, your visions, because... You need to leave room for a greater wisdom than you have. Uh, sometimes what you want will come to you in a different form than you imagined it. So here's what we say. The law of left field is that when you're living a life of generosity, when you're living in a way where you're collaborating with the universe around you instead of being antagonistic with the world around you, then things will come to you seemingly out of nowhere that you could have never imagined, and often from sources or avenues that are the least likely that you expected, uh, that you could have never planned. So that lead that you never imagined, leads that you, that you never thought would go anywhere, leads to the perfect opportunity, um, or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. These things happen. This was for me, the go-giver. When, when the go-giver happened, I was carving out a career as a screenwriter in Hollywood. That was my plan. Now, mind you, I have no screen credits. I've never written a screenplay that's been produced. I've written screenplays, but nothing's produced. But that was my goal. I was going to class, studying screenwriting. I was following the screenwriting trade vigorously. I was watching every movie ever known to humanity. I was studying screenplays like crazy. That was my aspiration. I wanted to be a successful screenwriter. My friend Bob Berg came to me and said, hey, would you write this book with me? And I was like, oh, I don't have time. I'm just too busy. But it's Bob, and I love Bob, and I trust Bob. And so if he says I should look at it, I should probably look at it. So I agreed to at least look at his idea. But I didn't really think I was going to do it. I didn't really think it was going to work. I didn't really see it happening. But, you know, 
It was Bob, so I at least had to do him the honor of looking at it. Little did I know that screenwriting was not the profession I was going to be in. I was going to be an author. Uh, in fact, this just doing this favor for Bob and looking at his idea and going to visit him at his house turned into this book, which turned into my career for the last 10 years. I never imagined that. Last thing I expected. But, but there you are. These things, these things happen all the time when you're open. You have to be open to it. The universe is beneficent. It is benign. And it has the answers you want. Um, but you have to leave room. That's, that's what the left, the law of left field is really all about. That's amazing law. It's really comes to play so well. That's uh, the law of the left field. And sometimes we, yeah. we, we not so uptight with our, our plans and schedules, but leave room for some magical surprises here and there. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, John, uh, as we run about, I just want you to tell us what what would be in in, in a phrase in a sentence about the Go Giver Review and Boba Britain. What would be the one phrase that you want listeners to take home and go act on it today? Oh, what a great question! One phrase. <clears throat> you know, people ask us often uh, about how to implement these five laws of stratospheric success. How do I? Uh, how do I put these into action in my life? And I think what I would say is pay attention to the little things. Look for little ways to implement all five laws. Uh, we talk about the law of receptivity, the fifth law, which says the only way to really be a, a, a to keep giving is to is to stay open to receiving. A lot of people have a tough time with that. They have a tough time. Uh, a lot of people come to us and say, I think I'm a very giving person, but I'm broke. You know, what's the problem? Well, it's not. The problem is money because there's lots of money out there. The problem is it's not coming to you. Why is it not coming to you? There's a, there's a receiving problem here. We, we, we talk about that a lot. Well, a lot of people have a problem receiving a compliment. If someone says, oh, you look nice today. He says, oh, well, no, really. No. That right there, it's a little thing, but the little things are the big things. So I would say this, pay attention to the little things. The big things will tend to take care of themselves. Look for little ways to go above and beyond expectation. Look for little ways to create value in people's lives. Look for little ways to touch more people. That's law two. Look for little ways to put other people's interests first, the law of influence. Law number four, look for little ways to be more authentic, to be more yourself, to let your heart show, to to be more authentic with other people. And law five, look for little ways to be more open to receiving. If you practice that, it's like a muscle. Practice the, doing those things in little ways. They will turn into big ways. Wow. Wow, that's amazing. Thank you so much, John David Mann. John, this I ask you my last billion-dollar question. What will be your billion-dollar advice to the world from George David Mann? My billion-dollar advice to the world? Yeah. <laughs> oh, let's see. The world doesn't ask me what to say. Well, world, billion-dollar question. Uh, I would say, world... Transform your schools. <laughs> that would be my billion-dollar advice.
Start looking at how to really give value to these kids. Schools, education, transform your schools. Put money aside for a moment. Put government aside. Put regulation aside. Put theory aside. And really look at children, at schools, at kids. And let's transform these things into what really builds these, these kids' lives and gives them value. I believe there's there's a, a great foundation of for 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 our generation or for for the world because schools are a modeling part of our lives. It's yes, transform it can really impact and help people. Yes. All right, John. Thank you so much for your time and sharing insights on the Go Giver book and your story, your journey on entrepreneurship, business building, and the culture of the Go Giver. I really appreciate it, and I believe listeners will find this really, really very and helpful in whatever you're doing. You are so welcome. Thank you very much. As a pleasure, I treasure. All right. So at this time, I want to recommend my latest book. So check it on Amazon.com today. Visit Amazon.com/author/BennettKelvin. The best is yours.